This morning's reading is from the NIV version. Our reading is from the book of Micah, chapters 3, verses 1 through 3, 5 through 6, and 9 through 12. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat from the pan, like flesh for the pot. This is what the Lord says. As the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. If they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness, without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. This has been the reading of the Lord. So Dale asked me to kick off our series on the minor prophets, which I was very glad to do. So I'm going to give an overview of what are some of the major themes, things you need to look for as you read the minor prophets. We're going to be working on this for a few weeks. But before we get into that, I want to make a terminological observation. Minor prophets is not the same as minor league. These are not second rate. And I think we often relegate them because they're in the back of the Old Testament. We just, and they're not the easiest thing to read, to be honest, to get something out of. We don't read them, and we don't know them. We think they're kind of second rate, but they are not second rate. The minor prophets have the word of the Lord. They speak powerfully to, um, to that situation that they faced and to ours. Now, the, when you look at the total picture of prophets in the Old Testament, it covers a lot of history. It's about, I reckon, roughly 400 years that prophets were speaking and, and correcting and, and bringing words about justice. So naturally, there's a lot of differences between the different books. I mean, if you think that's about twice as long as our nation has been ex in existence. So things change. And so not every, every one of those minor prophets has a particular situation that is unlike the others. However, there are two general qualities I want to bring to your attention about all the minor prophets. In fact, all the prophets, major or minor. First, they are dealing with a national crisis. 
You know, we in the modern American church tend to read everything uh, in the Bible as though it's going to speak to us personally and help us live a better life. And, you know, there's a lot that does just that. But the prophets don't really work for that very well. They are addressing a situation of national communal concern where there's something really deeply wrong. Now, some of them, they don't, the people don't realize there's something wrong. I mean, they, they think everything's peachy, and the prophet sets out to, to straighten them out. There really is a crisis, and you need to deal with it. But in many cases, certainly in the case of Micah, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, they know there's a crisis. But the questions that come up are, what does it mean? Is there a deeper root cause that I need to deal with? Is what am I supposed to do? What are we supposed to do as a community? What is God doing? Where is he in the midst of this crisis? So we're talking about national crises that, that, uh, that the, the prophets are addressing with the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord uh, invariably has to do with justice. Justice. Now that's a word that we have to listen to carefully because most of the time, in our society, we think of justice in a more legal framework. That's, it's like, okay, somebody's done something wrong, they should be held accountable, and the, any victims should be receiving recompense in some way. So in the end, we'll get kind of the ledger straight. We'll get uh, everybody set back to the position they should have been in, fair, equal, and we're done. But that that, and that is indeed an aspect of justice in the Bible. Fairness, legal fairness. But justice is a much bigger word in the Bible. It has to do with God setting a bleeding world right. God looking at a world that he created to be lovely, beautiful, peaceful, harmonious. God and man living together in, in harmony. And it ain't. It's, it's bleeding and broken. And the God of the Bible is determined to set it right, to make things right. That's justice. So when you see any situation, whether it's in your family or whether it's in your community, your neighborhood, your, your, your state, your nation, your, the whole globe, when you see something that's wrong and you want to set it right, what are we going to do about this? That's justice. That's a concern for justice. And that's what the prophets are speaking of. And when they, when they speak about justice, they almost invariably speak of it in, in two broad categories. The first is justice to God. Now you might say, justice to God? That, that makes no sense. I mean, he is the one who brings justice, yes, but justice to God? What does that mean? Well, I think, think about it this way. In a, in a just society, people pay their debts, right? I mean, you don't stiff your workers. You don't run off and leave your creditors holding the bag. You pay what you owe. Everybody does. That's, that's a form of justice. What do you owe God? What are your debts to God? That's what we pray, don't we? Forgive us our debts week by week. What are those debts? What do you owe him? Well, I think at the very least... You owe him recognition that there is no other God, that he is God and we are not. You owe him that, that the allegiance of the one who, who made us and created us and loves us. 
We owe him devotion. And when the prophets talk about this part of justice, they often use the word, or almost always use the description, of idolatry. Idolatry is a word we don't easily recommend, uh, relate to because we think of the traditional forms of idolatry where you carve up a little statue and you bring gifts to it and you try to manipulate through the statue, manipulate events so that things go well for you. And that is a form of idolatry that was very prevalent in the times of the Old Testament. And it still, it still happens in the world around us, but not so much in America. But there are lots of ways to be an idolater without having any statues. It's any time anything else is taken for God who is not God. Any person, place, anything that would, we would look to to give us meaning and direction, purpose, and that we, we basically think is the center of the universe. That's, a, that's an idol, whatever it is. So that's one of the aspects of, of justice, justice to God. If there is no justice to God, there is no justice in society. And the Bible often sees the two forms of justice very closely related. And the second form is justice to your neighbor, of course. Justice to God, justice to your neighbor. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Same, same concept. Justice Love, they're the same thing because they're setting things right. They're repairing what's broken. That's what we're talking about when we talk about justice. Uh, now, when you talk about justice to our neighbor, a lot of times uh, we can be a little vague about that. You know, I get along with my neighbor. I even lent my lawnmower to him. But uh, th when the Old Testament talks about justice to neighbor, there are kind of three test cases that are usually brought the widow are you how are you treating widows and it's by the way it's not addressed to individuals it's addressed to a community the orphan how are you treating orphans and how are you treating foreigners widows orphans foreigners those three words will come up in in sync time and time again in the old testament certainly in the prophets and, and, and why those three because they are the most vulnerable people in society. And they have nothing to offer you. They cannot give you a quid quo pro. If you help them out, you scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. No, they have no power in society. And so if you want to ask a, a society or a community or a church, are you doing justice? You have to look at those three test cases and say, How, what are we doing for those people? Are we treating them fairly? Are we treating them lovingly? Are we treating them the way God treats them? Are we caring for them the way God cares for them? So that's justice. Uh, now, I want to say, before I get to Micah, uh, just a word or two about how to read the prophets. Because, frankly, the prophets are not the easiest part of the Bible to read. It's certainly not like sitting down and reading a novel or a piece of history or a narrative like Ruth or, uh, or, or even the stories of David. But rather, what you find if, as you read it is it, it's confusing. The terminology you're not, you don't know, and, and, and jumping subjects. I mean, jumping from one subject to the next. Just one moment you're talking about a war that's going on, and then the next you're talking about peace sometime in the day of the Lord, sometime in the distant future, and then you're back here, and then 
you know, it just it moves around a lot, and it and they're not necessarily easily connected. If you get the big picture, if you can see the whole thing, yes, it's all connected, but it doesn't go in 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 series like that. So here's how to. So you can get you can get very confused, and you can get discouraged reading the prophets. So here's how to read the prophets. This is going to help you, I promise. Read it like a book of poetry. And how do you read a book of poetry? One poem at a time. I mean, you don't sit down with a book of poems and just keep reading poem after poem after poem. You start with one poem. And it doesn't have to even be at the beginning. It can be in the middle of the book or at the end of the book. It does Because the poems are, are not serially related any more than the pieces of the prophets are related. But you read it, you, you think about it, you look at the imagery, you examine it, you, you meditate on it, you read it again. And you let it soak in. That's how you read the prophets. You take one section. Now, like Micah, Micah has seven chapters. It's a short book. There's about 13 sections, depending on who's doing the dividing, but roughly 13 sections. Take one section. Read it. Think about it. Read it again. Try to identify the images that are used. Try to think about what they mean. And, and then pray, it, pray your way through it. Now, I do want to make a cautionary comment on that. Israel, to who is being addressed by these prophets, is not America. So you can't just take a word of the Lord that was given to Israel and just transplant it to America and say that's what America is supposed to do. Nor is Israel the church. Now, we have more in common as the church of Jesus Christ because we share the same vision, the same message, we share the same mission, but still... We have Jesus. They didn't. And that makes a lot of difference, a big, big, big difference. So you can't just take the words of the Lord to the, uh, old, to the old Testament Israel and just transplant it into our contemporary church. But what you can do is listen. You can listen for the word of the Lord to our community, to our times. And that re remembering that we have this incredible privilege of the actual words of God addressed to that crisis long ago to a people called to follow God and be his, his image makers in the, in the world. God has spoken to them. We can read what he said and we can ask, what does this speak to us? How does this tell us how we should be and how we should think and how we should act? So that's how you read, uh, you read the Old Testament prophets like a poem. And they are very poetic, you know. They're generally set out in the Bible as poetry. There's a reason for that, because there's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of rhetoric. You have to read it with your imagination and try to understand. And, and that takes me to Micah. And I, and I thought, I spent the whole week reading and rereading Micah and thinking, how am I going to condense all this into the last 10 minutes of my sermon? Well, I just decided I couldn't do it. It's just too much. This is, there's a lot of material. Even though it's only seven chapters, Mike is complicated. It covers a lot of territory. So I'm just going to take one chapter, chapter three, and, and go through some of the points there, just so you get a flavor of what Mike is, Mike is about. But you're going to have to do the rest of the work yourselves. The, what's the crisis? The crisis that Israel is facing is military. They are, being, uh, they, are a f they are being invaded. Assyria, which is a much more powerful and much richer 
and much bigger country to the north has already in the recent past come down and wiped out the northern kingdom, their sort of sister kingdom, and, and destroyed their whole capital city, torn down the walls, torn down the buildings, taken the people into exile, those who didn't die in the battle. And now they're coming south and they're invading Judah, the southern kingdom. That's where Micah does his work. So obviously people are asking questions. What, what does this mean? They're very God-centered people. Is God somehow involved in this? What can we do? Where, what, what, is it, what is it all about? And Micah, Micah answers them. But Micah sees a crisis that is different from the one they see. Actually, he's not focused on the military crisis at all. He's focused on the leadership crisis. There's a crisis in the leadership of Israel. And in chapter 2, if you read it, you'll see he sort of sets out how a clique of the leaders has come to work together. It's not just the government. It's not just the business. It includes the priests. It includes the prophets. But the, the, the key leaders in the society have managed to control the entire economy by dominating the ownership of land. And in an agricultural society, land is everything. And this is a totally agricultural society. There are no, you know, there's nothing else really in the economy but growing crops and, and, and feeding people. They, a small clique of people, of leadership people, have come to dominate that whole economy and they are oppressing the, the, not, not just the poor, but really everybody, certainly the poor. And so it's a, it's a very corrupt system. And it's, it's deadly. It's, it's, it's causing a great amount of problems. So Micah sets out in chapter 3 to kind of examine what's going on in the mindset of these leaders. And I want to read again these first three verses uh, that Michelle read. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil? Listen to this part. Who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. So what's he saying? It's a metaphor. <laughs> He's saying the leaders think about their people the way a butcher thinks about a cut of meat. It's not that they don't appreciate meat, but they see it as a commodity only. They don't see these people as human beings made in the image of God. They see them only for what they can use them for, how they can be advanced. The people are a commodity. And like, like meat, you know, you have an animal, you have a carcass, you skin it first, you use the skin for leather, and then, of course, you cut the meat off the bone, and then you may, need, you, know, you may do all kinds of different cuts in order that it can go into the pot. It can be eaten by me. That's the mindset of the leaders. And then he goes on in verse 11 to, to detail a little more three groups of leaders. First, the, the, the leaders. He calls them, well, the word in NIV is leaders. It, it really has to do with court officials who control the legal system. And they make judgments about who's right and who's wrong on land and, and everything else. And it says, her leaders judge for a bribe. 
In other words, if you want justice in the court, you better bring something. In other words, the leaders who are in charge of the courts aren't really thinking about fairness. They're not really thinking about justice. They're thinking about what's in it for me. They're really trying to use the system, rig the system, if you will, in order that they would get a benefit. And if you bring a benefit, you'll get what you want. If you don't have anything to bring, good luck. Her priests, her priests, the religious leaders, yeah, they teach. They teach for a price. They teach for a price. Yeah, they do the religious leadership that they're supposed to do, but they have to get paid. They're not really in it for the, the cause itself. They're in it only when they get money. And her prophets, now you might say, well, Micah, you're a prophet. Yeah, Micah's a prophet. But he's not, this, there are a lot of prophets. And, and they're not all like Micah. In fact, verse 5 says uh, this about them. They proclaim peace if they have something to eat. In other words, they'll give you a very nice message as long as, you know, there's something in it for them. They're going to get some donations, contributions. And I don't know if that sounds a little familiar to you, but there are messages that make people feel good and they dig into their wallet. Micah's not one of those people. I mean, his message is uncomfortable. But, but there are prophets who preach very comfortable messages in order to get contributions. So all three of these groups of leaders, and so it's, it's across society, are basically oriented about money. Money runs the world that they're in and that they're leading. And that's the only thing that's of any significance. So it's a crushing indictment of Israel. Here's a nation facing a national crisis about to be invaded, and where is the leadership's head? It's in, it's in the money. It's in what's in it for me. It's in, it's in me and us, not certainly the Lord, not even the people that they lead who are just meat for the pot. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to leave you thinking that Micah offers no hope. This is, this is pretty, you know, if you were listening to this message, you might turn off the radio, you know, you, you might not be that welcome. But Micah does have some words that are, that are hopeful. And interestingly enough, very little does he seem to hope for the short term. He doesn't seem very, he's speaking to them courageously uh, about the short term, but he doesn't seem to hope for much. But we know from the history of this time that actually his words got through because he's, he and Isaiah are ministering about the same time and they, they're speaking to the king, they're speaking to the leadership, and they're speaking to the whole people. And King Hezekiah responded and there were changes made and the, the disaster that was coming from Assyria was alleviated and they were rep given a reprieve from the disaster that was about to come in them. So actually things in the short term, temporarily, were, were made better. But, but, but that's not where Micah identifies his hope. His hope is in two things. Over the horizon somewhere, he sees a great king coming. And he makes some of the prophesy, prophecies about the Messiah. He actually is the one who says Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, which is one of the prophecies cited in the New Testament. So he sees that someday there's going to be a leader, not, not 
the leader right now, but someday there's going to be a really great leader who's going to change everything. And then he also sees hope at the end. He doesn't believe, for all our troubles, that God will be defeated. Rather, God will win. Love will win. And he perceives uh, a day when there will be peace, complete peace. The, the, he, he uses the phrase, you probably know, that you'll, they'll take their, their uh, swords and beat them into plowshares. They're gonna, it, there, there's not going to be any training for war anymore. So he does see a brilliant future. But in the present, Micah also tells us what we can do. And I'm going to close with this. This is a very famous verse, Micah 6.8. You probably know it. What are you supposed to do? The people are asking, we're in a crisis. What are we supposed to do? Should we call a prayer meeting, an all-night prayer meeting, to, to beg God to, to send off the Assyrians? Should we, should we bring all kinds of offerings and, and tremendous piles of good stuff that God will be pleased with? He'll see that we're really sincere. We really love him. And please don't let us be hurt. Micah says no. God doesn't want that at all. He's told you what he wants. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now let's, let's just look at that a little bit. To do justice is an action verb. It's not, about an, it's not just about your attitude, it's about what you do. It's to do justice. So, you, you want to really ask yourself, what are we doing for the most vulnerable? How are we treating them? To love mercy. Now, mercy, oftentimes people think mercy and justice are opposites, but they aren't in the Bible at all. Actually, justice requires mercy. Mercy is the only hope we have of getting justice, really. Mercy is for people who don't deserve it. They don't deserve the help that you're offering. But you give it, and you love to give it. You love mercy. That's what God wants. And to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? Well, humbly, humbly with God, means at the very least, you recognize He is God and I'm not. And so when we walk together, it's not an equal arrangement. It's not like I telling God, this is what we need to do, God. I want you to show up. No, it's rather the opposite. He tells us what he wants done, and we show up. We walk humbly. And we walk. We're going somewhere. We're not just sitting there thinking about it. We're walking with him where he wants to go. Where he's going, in fact. And the Bible is full, the prophets are full of statements about where God is going. Can we walk humbly with him? Can we do justice? Can we love mercy? Not just show mercy, but love it in our hearts. Amen.